Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 4-413 of the Run Run Live podcast. And we've got a great show for you all today, y'all, y'all today. A couple of weeks ago, I interviewed Morgan, and I really enjoyed the interview. And I think I told you I really enjoyed her book. And you'll hear the story in the conversation But the brief version is that I get the privilege to read a lot of books by athletes and runners, and seldom does the writing do justice to the story. In most cases, you know, there's just too much exposition and too much linear narrative. And but Morgan's book, Outlandish, is the exception. She's very good at her craft, and I dig that. So that's what we talk about. And it was funny because I kind of threw her sideways by not wanting to ask her any of the normal questions. So it's kind of a fun interview. Also, note that about 17 minutes and change into this interview, my phone crapped out, and we had to reconnect to finish it. So you may see a change in the audio there, and I think you'll hear us talking about it depending on how Dimitri edited the episode. And in section one, I'll give you a nice audio on good running form. And I'll also post that as a separate file so that you can have it to listen to independently when you're not out and about. Uh, Or if you want to take it with your running, that sort of thing. Practice your form. In section two, I'm going to finish talking through The Happiness Curve, which I that book that I completed last week while traveling. It has been an action-packed couple of weeks since we last talked. I knocked off 16 miles with my Sunday morning buddies right after we spoke last time on that one Sunday that was really hot and humid, and it was it was pretty awful. I got home, took a shower, and immediately napped for two hours. But I fought through it, and... That was a it was a good confidence builder. I was down in Memphis at a client last week, uh the week of the 21st of July 2019 for those of you who are time traveling or are interested aliens from another dimension and need a waypoint to figure out where you are. So anyhow, I was down in Memphis and I got a couple of decent runs in on the sidewalks. Had some dicey travel coming back and didn't end up getting into bed till about 4 a.m. on Friday morning. But of course, I was still at work at nine o'clock. Then Saturday, we rolled out, Yvonne and I, and we drove out to North, I'd call it North Central Pennsylvania, uh, to meet up with our friend Greg, who we've all, we've interviewed Greg before, I think. Uh, Greg's been a friend of the show for more than a decade. So anyhow, we met up with Greg to have some dinner and to pace the Conquer the Canyon half marathon at his invitation. And I know know what you're thinking. I know what you're saying here. You're saying, this is normal Chris stuff, but wait for it. Wait for it. 
the big news, the big news is that we stopped to see a puppy litter on our way and came home with a new puppy. Yep. I got an eight-week-old Border Collie. He's he's sleeping on the floor behind me right now. The girls named him Ollie, which I wasn't thrilled with because that kind of sounds like a, a fat kid with glasses to me. But hey, what what can I do? I don't make the rules in this house. So yeah, Ollie's been uh, a terror. I don't know what I was thinking. It's like having a newborn baby in the house. He's starting to settle in now, but it's a terror. Yeah, God help us. As I am editing this, sitting on the steps in my front yard, he's throwing up some grass he just ate, and then he's rolling in it and managing to be cute as hell all the time in the whole process. Oh, and I picked up a uh, cold. You might hear a little bit of a cold here. I picked up a cold traveling. So I lost some more training time, and the continuous sleep deprivation doesn't help at all. And I'm still a bit of a wreck in my training. Or should that be a training wreck? Get it? Training wreck? So I'll give you a story. (laughs) A story uh, for the happiness curve. I posted a workout to Instagram and one of my runs down in Memphis. It was nothing special. A sidewalk, eight mile out and back. And one of the comments was, hey, that's a pretty good pace and distance. Wait for it. For a guy your age? Yeah. (laughs) That's it. I've entered the For a Guy Your Age Club. And because my expectations are exceedingly low, I'm happy with that. (laughs) On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Let's talk about form. Part two in my series on form. Okay, Bubba, you've been patient. Now I want to fill in some of the details. But before I start out, let me say one thing. If you're getting out and running and enjoying yourself, then don't obsess about your running form. If it's working for you, then hey, that's that's great. That's perfect. Don't mess with it. I don't mean to form shame anyone. I certainly don't have perfect form myself. But, if you want to learn more form, let's talk. And I always worry about this discussion because it's so holistic. There are so many moving pieces. It's like juggling octopi, as I say. But we will progress. Also worth mentioning is that there are a bunch of interconnected movements here, and there's really no precedence in what sequence to work them. Most coaches start with the foot strike and the posture, so hey, that's where we're going to start too. Foot strike. This is when, where, and how often your foot hits the ground. Let's talk about how often. Cadence. In your running form, there is a certain frequency to your foot strike. It is 180 hits per minute. That's the magic number. That's the cadence. Plus or minus two hits per minute. Like everything else... That may vary slightly from runner to runner, but overall, this number is pretty solid. When I count my cadence, it's usually a little low. I'm like 178, but it's close. It's in that range. When I'm doing speed work, it might be a little faster, uphill, downhill. It varies, but somewhere around the 180 is a good number. So 180 hits per minute. Bump, bump, bump. That's the cadence. Burn it in. Bump, bump, bump. There are different ways to count your cadence. Newer GPS watches come with a foot pod accessory that you can stick in your shoe, and it will count your cadence for you as part of the data. Uh, Most of the watches you use now will guess. Some of the Fitbits will and the Garmin's will. They'll guess at your cadence. The easy way is to look at your watch or your phone, note the time, and count each time your left foot hits the ground, or your right foot, doesn't matter. And at the end of that minute, multiply it by two. There's your cadence. There is also a ton of music you can get and download, and even a metronome app that will give you 180 count that you can practice with. When you first 
time your cadence, you'll typically find that your cadence is too slow. It's seldom too fast. The reason your cadence is too slow is because you are overstriding. What does that mean? It means you're reaching out too far in front of you with your landing foot, your leading foot, and dwelling too long in the transition. Which is a nice segue into the next bit of running form in the foot strike itself. You want to pull your form upright and forward so that your center of gravity is slightly forward of your foot strike. Where is your center of gravity? Well, it's your core. It's your torso. You want to push that center of gravity out in front of you so that you're falling forward, slightly falling forward. You're falling and you're catching yourself as you are falling. Your center of gravity should be slightly forward of your foot strike. The way you push your center of gravity forward is by pushing your hips forward. Imagine, if you will, there is a rope tied to your belt buckle and it's pulling you forward. Push those hips forward right there. Move that torso so it is falling forward. Then your feet have to keep up with that forward fall. And this forces you to land on the forefoot, that space right behind the toes. And you'll feel the foot hit the ground. But since you're falling, you flow through that foot strike and you kick it up behind you. Fast, hot feet. Bump, bump, bump. No lingering on the foot strike. Bump, bump, bump. A great mantra here is light feet or run lightly. And this will remind you to loosen up run tall, and maintain that fast cadence. Fall through the foot strike. Push those hips forward. Move those feet quickly. Bump, bump, bump. Think about your torso. When your hips are pushed forward, that automatically straightens up your posture. You should be, in the words of the running coaches, running tall. Don't slump forward. Straighten up your shoulders, high and square, light and relaxed, Let all that tension release out of your back and shoulders. It's all being pulled along by the hips. Bring your head up. Look forward. Relax your chin. Smile. Breathe. In through the nose. Out through the mouth. But what do you do with your hands? Well, bring your hands up lightly to near your chest. Elbows at 90 degrees and slightly push back behind you. Straight back and forth in rhythm with your quick stride. Not around, not flailing. Nice and light and tight. Hold your hands lightly and slightly open and close to your chest. Quiet your arms and your hands. Release all that tension out of your hands and your arms. Don't swing or pump. Just quiet. High and quiet. Light and quiet. Bump, bump, bump. In your mind, imagine a string that runs down through your spine and pulls you upright through the top of your head. Run tall, hips forward, bump, 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 forefoot strike, hot feet, bump, 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 light feet, fast feet, tall and strong, easy. Relax into this form, tall and strong. When you get into the right spot, there's no wasted energy. There's no pushing off. You are falling easily down the trails with your light, fast feet catching you. And that's good running form. And next time, we'll talk about some of the why do you care moments for this running form, like maybe in races. Last time, I asked you to look at the form of good runners or the runners around you and make a mental note of what that looks like. I also ask you to have someone video your own form so you could see the difference. And this week, I'm going to ask you to pay attention when you're out running with other people. If you have a running group, take a look at the various ways people run. And better yet, if you're out watching a race or you're running a race, watch what happens to people's form, especially at the end. When they get tired, what happens? And this is this form stuff is fun, right? And now for today's featured interview. So Morgan, 
We are here today to chat about your new book here, Outlandish, about your adventures living as a, uh, a run bum out in Utah and the other southwestern states. So uh, first, why don't you give us the 200 words on who you are and how you got to this place where the stories in this book were born? Oh, man, I don't know if that's the 200-word question, but for the 200-word version, I am a runner and a writer. I spent most of my life competing competitively, and two years ago, I decided I needed a change and made a pretty big detour and moved into my Jeep. And I wanted to focus more on freelance writing and trail running and just get out and see more of the world. And that's where the idea for Outlandish was born out of. I was kind of cooking with the the bottom of the barrel ingredients and eating out of dumpsters and and truly just scraping by to make this this dream of being a full-time writer a reality. And I would always joke about writing a cookbook someday called Fifty Shades of Burritos because I was just literally living on random cold ingredients in a tortilla because I didn't even have a good cook. But as fate would have it, I was able to turn those recipes into something much more and combine the adventures that I'd had on the road with the recipes and turn them into this book. Yeah, so the book itself is formatted almost like a travel guide, right? Like those travel guides you used to get, sort of that little blocky (laughs) travel guide thing. And it's a travel guide to this place and this adopted lifestyle in this place, right? So talk to me about the format of the book. Was this your brainchild, you know, with the photos and the recipes? Or was it the publisher or was it some sort of collaboration that gave birth to this? I mean, I'll definitely give tons of credit to the entire team that works on the book. They helped bring, I had an outlandish vision that was one of those things, well, if somebody's going to go for it, like, that'll be the, the impossible dream. And, and Bella Press bought into it. And it was it's been amazing from day one working with them. The first year I was living in my Jeep, I was actually commissioned to write the first guidebook to Bears Ears National Monument right on the cusp of the time it was designated and when it was reduced. And so that many of the stories in Outlandish fell within that time period. And that's a lot of where the inspiration for putting together this book kind of in a guide format, although it's definitely more of like a a guide to inspirational than to the letter guide. But that's where the idea came from. Right, exactly. But it works. I liked it a lot, especially the photos. The photos are great because the photos are not just random photos. They relate to the text and the other stuff that's going on. So it's kind of a builds a narrative versus being separate pieces, if you know what I mean. Absolutely. And that was definitely my goal. I mean, a lot of the stories, when you look at them, they kind of jump around locationally and sometimes in time. But really, if you read through the book, even though you could just pick it up and read any chapter and dive into any recipe, which is fun, if you read the book from start to finish, it really is a cohesive book with a complete narrative. So thanks for picking up on that. Yeah, they see how that's why I like the book. It, it was challenging for me that way to get something more than just the usual first-person narrative, bloggy kind of, hey, I'm a runner book. So that that's great. Oh, yeah, and that's definitely, I mean, if you don't mind me jumping in. I mean, one of the things that I wanted from this, it wasn't just like, hey, this is my life and it was wild. Let me tell you about me. I really wanted to bring people into these adventures and when they're reading it, feel like they're part of the action and then start to look at their own life like, well, gosh, you know what? I thought that last weekend's camping trip was a total disaster, but that was a pretty fun fun adventure and we have good stories and we burned dinner, but that's kind of hilarious too. And so for people to start thinking that their life doesn't have to be perfect to be fun and adventurous and something anyone can access. Right. And one of the things that resonated with me, and I'm sure probably has resonated with a lot of people who have read this, is the kind of escape fantasy right? This is the escape (laughs) fantasy we all dream about, right? It's when I'm walking through the airport and I see a plane departing for Singapore and I say, I could just get on that plane, right? Right. And disappear for a few months. And you did, right? Why can't I just jump in my truck and head for the woods? You did it. Yeah. I mean, in one facet, it is possible. But the reality was I had nothing. I mean, you think about that and you think you have to have everything prepared. You have to have all this money to do something like that. But in my mind, if you win the lottery or if you have absolutely nothing, you're kind of in the same have nothing to lose category. And I had just gone through a divorce where I pretty much lost 
everything except for my Jeep and my camping gear. I had no money to my name. Eventually, my old job fell through as well. And I was pretty much living off of freelancing is not a high-paying proposition. But I refused to let that be something that dragged me down. I saw it as an opportunity to really, like, what do I have to lose? There's no reason to hold back and live conservatively anymore. Frugally, yes, simply, absolutely. But to really dive in and go after what I've dreamt of doing since I was a kid. And I think that resonates with a lot of people, whether they can actually do that. I hope people don't have the same circumstances where I had, where it was actually a dangerous situation. And I had to kind of vanish for a little bit for my own safety and sanity. But I also hope that it helps, you know, if someone is in that situation for them to not hold back and to get help and make a change and view it as something that can be positive as well. Because it wasn't always easy. Right. Yeah. It just reminds people that, hey, you're making a choice today. You can chuck it all and run away. <laughs> right? right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and to not give up on your dreams because sometimes your dreams will come to you in a form that looks like failure or looks like disaster. So if something really, your life and your goals like can come in many forms and to, if it's something you believe in, to really stay after it. Yeah. And that being said, as liberating as I'm sure it was, there must have been points where you were sitting alone in your Jeep in the wilderness wondering, what the hell have I gotten myself into? Yeah, definitely. Um, there were multiple times. I mean, actually, like even this winter, I spent a good chunk of time, a lot, most of the winter alone and in my Jeep and in the snow. I'm like, seriously, this is what I choose to do with my life. But then you step outside and you have an experience where there's like a frozen waterfall hanging over an alcove with an ancient granary with rock art all over the walls. And you get to witness it. And it's like this sparkling winter wonderland and you realize that by living this way and stepping aside from the normal distractions, the things that consume people's lives, you can enter a portal that's unknown to most people. So I feel that the challenges, especially like, again, not having any money and being like, what am I going to eat? That forced me to be really creative. And like, I never went hungry, but I had to learn how to not be like, oh, I'm a brat. I want to eat this. No, I ate what I could get. But it made just my appreciation for everything in life definitely grew tremendously. Yeah. I mean, the fact that you're a, um, an accomplished runner, right, must have helped a lot because the best way to explore some of this, right, to get to that alcove where the Anastasi built a, a granary 400 years ago to get there, you can just take your feet and go, right? Absolutely. I mean, that was my original, that was how the book was presented to me, the Bears Ears book, was that it was such a short amount of time to, that the publisher, Colorado Mountain Club, wanted to get the book done, that they wanted someone who they, they knew could write and knew was in the area, which I already was working on another story, um, but that could also cover this insane amount of terrain really rather quickly. The interesting thing is that my background is in middle distance tracks, so like 1,500, 5K, I have good laser speed. <laughs> I love hiking and I have good endurance just from, you know, I've been running since I was nine. Like you just build that base. I've done ultra marathons. I've done really long, like multi-day adventures, but that's definitely not my background and skill set. And I also had to learn how to slow down a lot because even though I'm moving faster than maybe the average person so I can like see more, I really had to slow down so I could also make sure I'm on track and retain the terrain and find the places I was looking for. So it was this interesting dichotomy of being able to use my skills for something new, but having to adapt them to something completely different because running in a canyon is not the same as running up a mountain and it's definitely not the same as running on the track. Right. And some of those places that you're in are kind of uh, not dangerous, but uh, challenging, right? And they can be dangerous too. I would say pretty dangerous. That was the other thing. Because when you, trail running can be dangerous, and I've, I've fallen on the trails and the mountains and, and the Sierras and the San Juans, but typically there's other hikers out there, and you see people, a lot of these places, you look at a register log, and you're like, wow, a handful of people have been to this place all year long. And the trails, are not, there are no maintained trails. There's numerous obstacles. There's plants and animals that can get you and no reception. You're really out there alone. And, and that was pretty humbling to me to realize that the margin of error was so minimal. And, and again, forced me to slow down more and be more careful, you know, especially, yeah. especially when alone. And I, ironically, I think when I am alone, I am probably my most careful. I get kind of, there's a tendency to get sloppy when you have backup. It's still good to have backup. <laughs> 
Yeah, you don't make those decisions that are risky decisions. No, I get it. No. Like I said, I get a lot of running books, these sort of running adventure books sent my way, and most of them are, are really forgettable, unfortunately. Sometimes it's that pro runner who's ghost racing, oh. ghost writing something, or <laughs> that person who finds yeah. running and it changes their life. And it's all really predictable in the narrative. But yeah. you know, what I really don't like is the prose is just not compelling. And I wanted to compliment you because your writing is different. Your Thank prose you. is compelling. You're not overusing that tired first-person narrative, yet you're letting the words do the talking for you, right? You're leaving space in the narrative for us to sense there's something more going on without resorting to exposition. So, for example, you say, well, I was running from a bad divorce and a, a dang you didn't write any of that, but I could sense that something dark was going on behind the scenes, right? And I get that a lot in your stories where you're not saying it, but I can sense uh-huh. it through the prose. You know what I mean? Yeah. Thank you. I mean, wow, I'm, gosh, making me, I really appreciate you sharing that. And I'm a runner, and yes, this is a book about running, but I'm a writer at heart, and that's always been my dream and my focus. And so the last thing I would ever want to do is just, make running the focal point. This is a story that happens to have running in it. And when you mentioned some of the darker undertones, that's absolutely what was going on from start to finish. And I'm never quite sure. I've talked to my publishers about it, if they were able to pick up on stuff like that. And I really want this to be like a happy book and it's a celebration, but I also didn't want to sugarcoat things. Like everyone in life, I think, is at any given point going through a series of mixed emotions. And this portion of my life has probably been the most extreme of any, just with lots of highs and lows. And I don't think that's surprising with the way I was living and the things I was coming in and out of. But I didn't want to burden people with the details because at the end of the day, this is a, a fun adventure book with recipes and with insight into the world of conservation and landscapes. There's a lot going on. Maybe at a later time, it'll be suitable to dig into some deeper, darker stuff. But I just wanted it to be implied and I wanted it to be there that people saw this wasn't just like, oh, leave one problem and everything's fixed, because that's just not the case. No, no, it's complimentary to you because I like it better this way. I would describe it as saying there's ghosts in the prose, and I can tell it's going on, but you're not talking about it. And I'm thanking you because I'm sure there were versions of these stories where you had six paragraphs on how shitty you felt that day, and uh, that didn't make it into the final edit. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And and the stuff that does include those ghosts, as you say, which is a great way. I'm definitely going to borrow that. That's perfect explanation. Those were some of the most painful things to write about. I was scared to put them on paper. Even Surprisingly, it's not six paragraphs that I left out. It was scared for me to even like whisper them onto the page. I was in a lot of denial for a lot of time about some of this stuff. And I found in letting go and, and subtly embedding them into the text and out in the desert, the, the more subtle details and textures are often what strikes me most. And I really wanted to weave that in the landscape of this book. And in doing that, I actually found a lot of like healing and ability to let go of some of the stuff that were some of the things that are really troubling me. And at the time I kind of joked, even just doing it a little bit, I kind of felt like it was going to be like make things worse because it was so painful to do that. And now in hindsight, looking back, I'm, I'm so glad I did. It, it really was the right choice. It helped me a lot. And hope helps other people too. Right, right. Yeah, and, but you don't and, need to know all the gory details. I mean, leave things to the imagination in this world of social media and everything. And I mean, I use it, but you don't need to tell people what time you brush your teeth and what kind of toothpaste it is. Exactly. So think about and that's why, again, why, why, why this? Too. Like, that imagination aspect is missing in so much of our world. Just it takes a little bit more effort to color it than just dump it all on the table, right? So, again, <laughs> yeah. that's why I, I enjoyed your prose. And the other thing I really liked is the way you did sort of the same thing with nature, right, with a capital N. So there's a lot of nature Mm -hmm. with a capital N in these stories. And the way you put that into the stories as almost like another character, like the desert is a character. Mm -hmm. And you use the descriptive language sparingly, but you still feel that character lurking and ever-present and the of the immense import of that character, right? So I really like the way you did that without having to go into, again, a ton of exposition about what color the rocks were and 
what the wind smells <laughs> like, right? Yeah, and, and some of that has to do with the fact that there are photos in this book. You obviously don't want to rely on the photos, but you don't want to over-describe when someone's like, yeah, I'm looking at a picture at that arch right now. <laughs> you have limited space, and so you need to be selective. But during my time, especially those periods where I was completely alone or alone in the sense that whoever I was with was not maybe enhancing the situation in a positive way, the landscape really became my ally and my friend, and I fell in love with it, and I, I really looked to it for companionship, the, the holistic nature with an end, the ecosystem, the plants, the sounds, the weather, the animals, even the soil, and it also became my home, the way that you might connect with your feet on the floor in your house and the hands on your counter. To me, that was the dirt underground on my feet, the rocks that I would sit on, the water I would collect because I, you know, I don't have running water out there. Nature, just like my friends and some of those stories, nature really was my companion such a large portion of the time. Right. It's like an overriding character in the narrative. So, yeah, I'm just thinking about this. You were fairly heavily immersed and a lot of this was solitary out there. You must have had some interesting moments. It's like going on a, a meditation retreat. You must have had some epiphanies or some vision type stuff going on. So did you have any cool, interesting epiphanies while you were out and about? Probably yeah, every day, I mean, right? I guess, yeah, and like some days were also just like more basic, just like anything in life. And you get kind of into a groove of things. I would say like on a more like meditative and existential level, there were, I talk about this twice in the book. Once is in Gone Guide Booking. I was sitting outside a canyon. It was mid-afternoon, pretty hot, getting attacked by biting cedar nets. And I just have like a can of beans and a beer and the sun's still out. And I'm like, oh my God, like what am I doing here? This is like, I'm just sitting out here in the dirt waiting to go to bed so I can get up and run in this canyon. I could just leave. Like, literally, no one's making me stay here. I just had that epiphany. But I was choosing to be out there. At that moment, I reminded myself, to. I just knew I needed to stay. Because if I stayed and waited out and got through the night, that I would get to witness something incredible. And that was my first real canyon voyage into Bullet Canyon. And I saw so much incredible archaeological sites and art and really sunk my teeth into, okay, I am capable of doing this. And it gave me a lot of strength. But even though I had been spending a lot of time outside, I still had my moments where I knew I could just turn on the car and go. I mean, I do have friends. I could go see friends and family. I don't have to just be outside alone all the time. And, and I chose to stay but then fast forward was a couple weeks later, I was out by Lake Powell and really like an exposed red rock desert area and super hot and same scenario, late afternoon, just me, can of beans, a beer, my notebooks. And I just had this incredible sense of just peace and comfort and like, this is where I belong. And I just remember it was one of the most beautiful nights of my life, like full moon, coyotes howling, owls. I just felt like I belonged there. And by staying, I had that experience, but it, it took me a while to really fully give in to like, yeah, this is my life now. Yeah. So I was figuring you must have got some of those just with the sort of contemplative uh, existence yeah. that you were doing. And when you sit alone, sitting alone in the desert will do that to you. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. Exactly. So now we're back at it. Right. Back at it. The audio might be a little different, explaining to people who may be listening here that we had dropped in our last call right there at the end, and now we're picking it up again from a different locale, right? So might be a little uh, bit different. Yeah. You got a run in since we last talked? I did a short run in the morning, a little fart lick, and then I went for a trail shakeout this afternoon. Um, I might running schedule is is really kind of dictated more by my writing and adventures these days. So if I have a really big day or I'm out in the wilderness, I, I'm not really getting a lot of writing done. It's probably yeah. a lot of slow moving and varied activities. So then whenever I'm kind of back in civilization, I just have to like fit in some some short movement. Yeah, I went out and worked on my wood pile for an hour. Fed the mosquitoes. Oh, that's a good one too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, a little cross training. Yeah, I did I did 18 and change in the woods yesterday, so I didn't want to run today again. I'm too old for that. That's smart. No, no, that's, so, everyone should heed that advice. <laughs> yeah, right. If only I took all my own advice. So, yeah, same. <laughs> so we were talking there and where we ended it. A couple of things I wanted to not miss were I really liked, of course, your stories about beer and dogs. I, I'm a dog guy myself, <laughs> so I really liked your story about Herschel 
And there was that one paragraph where you guys were all like cuddling under the blanket, and you say the dog smells like corn nuts. And uh, and your and Mike, who we never know who Mike is, but Mike's one of those ghosts in the background. He's the ghost. Like Twizzlers sure. and and Gatorade. Yeah. And uh, it was just it was really beautiful. I really liked that. So. Oh, it's, thanks. Yeah. Yep, well, I, as to, a, an uplifting note, I got to take a new dog in my life for a run today, named Phil. Oh, yeah. And yeah, which is great, and it's a. A nice surprising twist, um, but yeah, Herschel was such an amazing running companion, and it was honestly, it was really hard for me to run for like several months afterwards. He ran with me every day. I couldn't even, it was really hard to get myself out the door. So yeah, dogs, they they mark our lives in the best ways. Yep, they are. They're good friends, especially when you run with them. But I was going to ask you about your influences because I thought I smelled some other writers in the background there as part of your ghosts there. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. The ones you selected actually probably wouldn't top my list. Um, So Steinbeck, I've definitely read quite a bit of, but I actually have never read Travels with Charlie because every time it's crossed my path, I've had kind of a sad dog situation. So I haven't wanted to read it. And I think I'm ready to read it again with a new dog in my life. But as far as influences go, you know, I was thinking about this on my run. Jack Kerouac probably had the biggest influence just on my life in general. And as somebody I just love to read. And the Dharma Bombs is a big reason why my handle on Instagram and my blog is called The Running Bomb. And I just really enjoy those stories about the hobos finding themselves in the wilderness. But then, you know, as a stylistic influence, Hunter S. Thompson has had a huge impact on me in the way he can embed himself in the story and use it to bring the story to life rather than make the story about him. But removing him from the story, there's no story at all. So his gonzo journalist style has definitely impacted the way I write. And then as far as creative influence, classic adventure writers like Robert Louis Stevenson, Joseph Conrad, those Mm -hmm. swashbuckling, seafaring, really out there, like true adventure tales. Mark Twain also, that's had some tremendous influence on me. I was a voracious reader and writer since I was a kid. So that was the stuff I was hooked on. And I, and I was serious when I was a kid. I wanted to be a pirate when I grew up. I wanted to be a pirate <laughs> and I wanted to write about it. This is no, this is no joke. My parents were like, sure, Morgan, whatever. <laughs> That's great. So, yeah. so, um, I sort so, of am. So, so, yeah, you are, I guess. Yeah. So what's next for you uh, on this journey? Well, I'm still doing quite a bit of work for Outlandish. I'm finishing up a book tour slash extending it. I have a a date in Salt Lake City next week and tying it in with some conservation work I've been really invested in for Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument and hoping to get some more Utah dates um, later this summer and fall. I'm also wrapping up the final editing stages of a guidebook for Grand Staircase Escalante that's focused on conservation. It's a companion book to the Bears Ears guidebook that I wrote. And um, if all goes to plan, which it has enough until this point, that's how life goes, it'll come out in November, late fall. All right. And then if that's not enough on my plate, I'm trying to dream up and scheme up a proposal for my next book, which will be a big change from the style I've been writing in lately. Yeah, you're probably going to try something more, um, a long-form narrative of some sort. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> That's hard, you know, because I'm the same as you as I find that 1,500 words is great because then you can bang that out in the morning and then go do something else and forget about it, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. um, And and the plane has a lot of research involved with it. So it's a big project, but I really want to sink my teeth into something challenging. That's great. So that's what you got coming up next. How do people find you? How do people find the book? So you can find me for just like adventures and what's going on in my life. Running bum on Instagram. Uh, I, I post kind of just random adventurous quips and photos and quotes and things that inspire me on there. And I have a lot of fun with it. And then as far as ordering the book, the thing that helps me the most is if people buy it for me directly on therunningbum.com. It's available at indie bookstores, mostly around the Southwest, and online through different booksellers. I always like to advocate there's nothing wrong with Amazon, and I definitely buy stuff from there, especially on a budget. But the writers don't make any money off of that. So right. something to consider. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Understood. Yep. Good. Mm-hmm. Great. So I'm, cool. I'm, I'm uh, happy we could reconnect tonight. And, uh, yeah, thank now, you. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> Thanks for being patient with this sporadic timing. <laughs> no, that's cool. And good luck with your uh, book tour over thank the next you. coming weeks. And hopefully you can get back out into the wilderness where your, oh, where your yeah. life is. I have some 
good summer backpacking ahead and hopefully a river trip and lots of running in between. Yeah, I'll be down in uh, Colorado in uh, August. I'm oh, uh, pacing a friend at Leadville, so I'll be oh, there that I, One of my good friends is running. I might get out there. I just have a lot going on, but that could be a for-a-moment plan. Yeah, they just ran the uh, Silver Rush 50 this past weekend. Okay, yeah, yep. that's awesome. Same, similar course, same place. Sim- yeah, all really, right. same well, place. Cool. Yeah, thanks for well, everything. Maybe I'll see you and out we'll, there. Yeah, we'll be in touch, all right? Sounds good. Talk to you later. All right, bye-bye. Okay, bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. The Happiness Curve Wrap-Up. What does it mean... So you remember the last couple shows I've been talking about age and happiness. You might remember it as blah, 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 old, blah, 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 happy. No, no, seriously. I finished reading The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50 by Jonathan Rausch. I quite enjoyed it, and I think you would too. The premise of the book is that researchers and psychologists have been able to show that there is a U-shaped curve throughout life. If you plot perceived happiness on the y-axis going up and age on the x-axis going across the bottom, you'll see this u-shaped curve pattern. When people are young, they are happy. As they move towards middle age, they become increasingly less happy. But there's an inflection point in the late 40s, early 50s, where the perceived happiness starts to trend up again. This U-shaped curve, the shape of it, is the same across cultures, countries, time, and demographics. It's a big data thing. It doesn't mean you will be happier suddenly when you turn 50. It means the curve is observable, measurable. It's a trend across populations. So how do they get this data? Well, they simply ask a question. On a scale of 1 to 10, what is your level of satisfaction with your life today? And that produces this curve. Another side question they ask is, how do you expect it to be in five years? And the answers to this question gives you part of the explanation for why the happiness curve is shaped like it is. When people are younger they're overly optimistic about their future selves' happiness. They're optimistic about the future. There is a positive bias as to how happy they think they are going to be. And because of this, when they get there and they realize their forecast was off, it makes them less happy, you know, relatively. On the other hand, if you ask an older person how happy they are, they're going to be, you know, how happy you're going to be in the future. They have a different bias. They no longer over-bias to the positive side. Older people have lower expectations and a sort of don't-give-a-blank attitude. So they're happier. And of course, there are a couple of good ways to make yourself more miserable during life. One is to compare yourself to other people in your cohort who appear to be doing better than you. The other is to live in the past or the future, which we have talked about a lot recently, so I'll spare you the live in the now speech. And there are ways to mitigate the curve as well. All those things that you hear in pop psychology topics, they all work to some extent. Different things work more for people than others. It, It all depends on what works for you. You know, positive reinforcement, meditation, good habits, thankfulness, all this stuff helps. Being happy with what you have and thankful for it, that makes you happier. Enjoying the season of life you're in, that helps as well. And of course, exercise helps. For most of us, it's not really a full-blown depression that comes on in middle age. It's not even really unhappiness. It's just a general malaise. A feeling that something is missing. A question of, really? Is this all there is? And then when we hit that inflection point, we come to grips with it. And in a sense, we settle with it. This plotting of the actual happiness curve flies in the face of some of the common assumptions and stereotypes of aging. 
the culture just assumes that old people are miserable and that they're lonely because they are old. How could you be happy when your body and your mind are failing you? Well, yeah, I mean, it turns out that an aging body and mind, they're a challenge, but these challenges are outweighed by a satisfaction in living, in life, and I find that quite refreshing. Part of these cultural biases are because, until fairly recently, people didn't live much past 60. If you did, you were seen as waiting to die, right? Miserable old person waiting to die. In our modern world, you have an additional life season, a whole nother season. From the time you reach retirement age, you're typically got another 20 years to go. Is there some diminishing of abilities? Sure, your mind and your body, they start to slow down. But for this season of your life, you want to move from doing to teaching. As we discussed last time, move towards using your vast store of experience to help others. You have wisdom. Use that wisdom. Part of the happiness curve may even be biological. If we think about evolutionary necessity, what use are old people? Well, this is what researchers call the grandmother paradox. What use are grandmothers to the future of the gene pool? Well, it turns out they perform a protective function for the younger offspring, and that helps guarantee their DNA makes it through to the next generation. That's the happiness curve. Interesting, well-written, solid book, good story. Go ahead, read it yourself. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Well, my friends, you packed your Jeep with burritos and set out into the wastes for a long, soul-searching run and found yourself at the end of the Run Run Live podcast, episode 4-413. Was it all very cathartic? Yeah? For the Conquer the Canyon Half Marathon, I met Greg and was an official alternate pacer for the two-hour group, and it was fun to be able to coach people along the way, right, and help them get through the race. And that's the key difference when you're pacing, is that you're, you're not working very hard, so you can help others, and that's great, right? It's awesome. That's sharing some of that wisdom. If you're heads down racing, you don't have the bandwidth to help other runners. It was a pretty wooded course along a packed gravel rail trail that follows a river through a canyon. No hills, kind footing, decent scenery. We had a big bald eagle watching us at one point, which was kind of cool. And I think the best part about pacing is that people come up to you afterwards and they thank you for helping them. And that's pretty cool. When someone thanks you for getting them through the rough spots and then thanks you for getting them a PR, that's pretty cool. And there you go. One of the keys to happiness, helping others. So my mileage has been pretty low. I'm getting three days a week in, so probably mid-20s, maybe touching 30. I still feel that mountain bike dinger in my knee from back in June I rehabbed the hamstring pull that I gave myself in that 5K a couple weeks ago. And I'm just about through the other side of this airplane cold that I caught traveling last week. So, yeah. I've been doing three sessions a week of high hamstring tendinosis exercises. So, trying to get my glutes and my hips stronger. It's a couple of sets of hip bridges, a couple of sets of clamshells, a couple of sets of planks... And in between, I do push-ups and incline sit-ups, so I'm keeping a bit of core strength. I figure if I can still do 100 push-ups and 200 sit-ups, I can't be that out of shape, right? Right. So next up for me is pacing Eric at Leadville in a couple of weeks. Yeah, a couple of weeks. Good thing I'm picking him up at 50 miles. Uh, I have no doubt that I can muscle through some rocky mountain high miles at three and a half miles per hour. I did a night run last night over to the ski area next to my house. I ran over and did the ski hill. Hike up, run down, hike up, run down. And I ended up with 10 plus miles and about 2,000 feet of climbing. At this ski area, they have a tiki bar in the summer months with, you know, bad cover bands and that sort of thing. And the bouncers at one point rode over on a golf cart to see what the heck I was doing. 
they could see my lights going up and down the mountain. So I said, hey, I'm training. And they weren't super happy about that, but they they went away. And I guess it might not make sense to see an old guy humping up and down the double diamond late at night, but, you know. Then I got up this morning, early this morning, and ran part of the WAPAC with Paul. And that was perfect. I love the WAPAC. Doing those technical mountains on tired legs, that's just the ticket. So that was a pretty good weekend. I'll tell you a couple more stories to take you out. See, now Greg, Greg's going to listen to the uh, podcast, and he already heard these stories because he was running with me in the canyon. So that's what you get for running with me. You hear all the stories. Well, the first one is I was on the plane flying back, and I sat down next to this guy, maybe, you know, near my age, a couple years younger, looks a bit squirrely, you know, tattoos, lean guy, looks nervous. So I ask him, hey, you know, what are you doing? Where are you going? And turns out he's going to Boston to meet his daughter, who he hasn't seen in 21 years since she was four years old. So there I had obviously stumbled into a reality TV show. And his story was that he was a drinker, drugger, and he had a problem. So he left them way back when and moved to California. Uh, But now he's sobered up. He's cleaned up, clean and sober. And the ex-wife had orchestrated this whole reunion thing. So no wonder this guy was nervous. So I was coaching him. (laughs) Wisdom, right? I told him, hey, don't worry about the past. Just be in the moment. All you can do is love her. And this isn't about you. This is about her. You're going to do great. So I wish I could be a fly on that wall. Then my final story for you. I'm at this brewery with Tim and Frank, two of my running buddies, in Lowell, catching up. They And this brewery, they let people bring their dogs in. It's all very bohemian. They There's a, you know, it's a bit of a hole in the wall, and I dig it. <laughs> I'm, I'm at the bar saying hi to this big, goofy pit bull, and there's a guy there, a bit older than me, and he leans down to pet the dog, and he turns to me and he says... A lot of times, they're afraid of me because they can smell the cancer. Uh Uh-huh. So how do you respond to something like that? So luckily, I happen to know everything. Yeah, everything. So I said, you know, I've heard about that. People, people are funny. I was at the race last week, and no one said, hey, you're that guy. And no one asked me, hey, how many marathons have you done? You know, I didn't wear any of my Boston gear. I was basically anonymous, right? And it was a different crowd. It wasn't, it wasn't about me. And that was cool. And if you want to be popular anywhere, but at a race, if you want to be popular, ask people about their accomplishments. Ask them to tell their stories and listen intently and then congratulate them. When they tell you, everybody has stories. And I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. All right, what do we got here? There we go. And I turned 21 in prison, doing life without parole. No one could steer me right, but Mama tried. Mama tried. Mama tried to raise me better, but her pleading I denied. Now there's only me to blame, because Mama tried. Let's go. Let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. Good. That'll do. That'll do, that'll do, that will do.